Hey, everyone. Hi. Hello. Welcome to another episode of Alice. Hey, now. Greg, what are you doing here? Hey, what do you mean? What I, Allison, where do you, you come from, Greg? I came from the world of childish, and I just want to make sure that your listeners know that you're just as wonderful on the on the other podcast you do. What if they don't have kids? Don't need them. You don't need them. <laughs> A lot of our listeners actually tell us they don't have kids. We talk about sex. We and talk about all sorts and, of dirty stuff, yeah. but also parenting stuff. Yeah. So check out Childish new episodes every Wednesday wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, everyone. Hi. Hello. Welcome to another episode of Allison Rosen is your new best friend. I'm delighted to be here today with legendary comedian, actor, author, Lorraine Newman. She was an original cast member of SNL. She was uh, one of the founding members of The Groundlings. She's voiced characters that your children have definitely seen on shows and movies. And now she has an audible original memoir coming out March 11th called May You Live in Interesting Times. Hello. Welcome. <laughs> Hello, Allison. Thank you for having me. It's so I'm nice. I'm delighted to, have you on. to be here. <laughs> um, so I wanted to ask the process of doing a memoir, which you said you tried to do like nine or ten times, but knowing that it's just audio, what was that like? Well, it was a whole different thing, but the the chronology of how this worked in my in my preface, I talk about how many times I try to rewrite. But uh, the process was different once I was writing it for Audible because it had more practical needs, you know, organize it chronologically, you know, uh, fact check, uh, decide what I really don't need in it, which was plenty. <laughs> and um, <clears throat> and then from there, you know, you work towards having a working script. It takes a long time because they, they, they do vet it. They do fact check it. They do, uh, punctuation and grammar and spelling. And then they go, uh, do, uh, legal. Mm. And then finally you get a recording script. But, you know, you write it in a way that you know it's going to be a vocal performance. Right. Right. So what had been the challenge all those times before? And I say that I, sh I should acknowledge as a writer myself, like, I completely get it. I have tried to write a true memoir so, so, so many times, and I, I haven't tried in a long time. But you had tried for years and years, too. What was going on? Well, the first draft was just, bleh, you know, everything <laughs> that I could think of. And then I did the rewrite, uh, you know, I read it again to see what needed to be done in the rewrite, knowing that that's just a part of the process. And it was bad. <laughs> It was just, uh, and then this happened, mm -hmm. and I met them, and they were really nice, and then we went there. I mean, it was so bad. So one of the hang-ups was that each time I attempted a rewrite, I'd write something that I really liked, mm -hmm. but then I'd put it away because I'd hit a wall, and then so I had these nine drafts with a bunch of stuff in each of them that I liked, but I wouldn't know how to find them. It's like, you must know what this is like, Allison. You've probably got a drawer with napkins and Post-its 
and places all over your house that you've written notes in because you're going you're damn sure you're going to use it. <laughs> yes. And also I have a million disorganized computer files on my computer. Like I have such admiration for people who open up their laptop or on their desktop or whatever and they ha- they go into their folder and then there's like five different folders and it's like photos, videos, work stuff, da da da. Mine is just my computer is like your first draft of just being like, Bleh. so I can't find anything. <laughs> oh, my God, Allison, we're sisters. <laughs> Before we started, we were bonding over getting lost in parking garages because I, and I'm not proud of this, but I have panicked over I can't figure out how I've, I'm just driving in a circle. I can't figure out how to get down. Yeah. UCLA offers a course called Mindfulness. <laughs> Is that what that is? And it's as simple as that. You know, you may think you're losing your marbles, probably not at your age, but certainly at mine. But really, it's just a matter of like parking your car and going, I'm on the fourth floor. I'm in section green, P2, you know, or something like that, or write it on a ticket, you know, and you're, you're golden. Oh, you. I I am realizing now you were talking about not being able to find your car. In a yes. parking garage. I'm talking about something a thousand times worse. I want to go back to that Eden when we were sisters, as opposed to now where you're just <laughs> going to feel sorry for me. All no, right. I'm talking about being in my car and literally not being able to leave the parking garage. Oh, shit. <laughs> no. That's oh, worse. God. Yes, that's a bad feeling. <laughs> you don't want to be, you don't want your... uh your your bleached bones in in the farmer's market. No. You don't want that. Uh, yeah, but I'm going to try to find the way in which they're they're really similar when you think about it because I believe probably mindfulness. I just know that at a certain point I was like take a deep breath, you're going to figure it out. Mm-hmm. And then I did. So, you know, I've been forged in a, a crucible just like you. So, it sounds like, tell me if this is right, you had a pretty unusual at times, um, glamorous upbringing, but emotionally not fulfilling, not not what you needed. Well, yeah. I mean, I do talk about, because I'm learning all of this in therapy, <laughs> um, how my parents, you know, my dad was the typical 1950s dad. He worked all day. But also for the first year, uh, first four years of me and my twin brother's lives, my mother was sick. Mm-hmm. So we really had very little contact with her. It wasn't her fault. But by the time she was able to interact with us, she had already had two other kids by the time she was 19. And then she had this set of twins when she was 30. And she was just done. <laughs> you know, she was not interested. And right. God bless her. You know, I there are moments where I understand that. Of course, you know, being a parent, I became the opposite and became a helicopter parent. It was completely mm. up my kids' butts. But, <laughs> you know, um, yeah, so I was alone a lot. And also, as I'm learning... In therapy, Allison, um, you know that kind of neglect can constitute a trauma. It it really uh, sets in a child's sense of self worth, et cetera, et cetera. But mm-hmm. overall, you know, it was a really uh, fortunate upbringing in the sense that I I had clothes, I had food, and shelter. Yeah, I mean, those are the the and and we should be thankful for that. But still, yes. I feel like kids need so much more. I'll I'll say. Yeah. 
and you said she was sick with so I listening to the to the beginning of the, of the book I my heart went out so much to you and it also went out so much to your mom having a child who lived 17 days and then 17 you, hours 17 yeah. hours oh my yeah. god oh my yeah, god it's and then as you point out back in those days like they didn't really understand grief counseling or postpartum and so then she got a hysterectomy was that supposed to help her postpartum that was to treat <laughs> the oh depression i mean come on so. why not just an iron maiden okay right. um but also she got hepatitis from mm. the hospital it was just you know it was really hard for her yeah yeah so my heart definitely went out to her but also you needed someone there yeah but she was also a very talented woman and really should have had a career she mm. did a lot of things i mean she was a interior designer she uh built the westwood playhouse which is now the geffen oh wow and you know was was involved in the productions quite a few great productions there um she wrote a cookbook i mean she did all sorts of things she was interested and talented and was kind of you know trying to reconcile that and her obligation as a parent mhm so you became a helicopter parent like how yes yeah well um first of all you know i i read all these baby books Ultimately realizing the only book worth reading is what to expect when you're inspecting because every other book is written to empower women in the delivery room <laughs> and it ends up scaring the shit out of you. Yeah. You just don't need that stuff. But, you know, I was, I was in my kids' faces. I had, they weren't keeping me from doing anything I'd rather be doing. Mm -hmm. Uh, I watch shows like Pregnant at 16. And I feel so bad for those kids because, you know, um, I would have liked to have the energy, but I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't have been a good parent had I been younger. Same. That's exactly what I say, that I'm really glad I waited because I needed to work out a lot of stuff. However, yeah. there is something to be said for the energy you have in your 20s because yeah. I don't even like to take a red eye anymore. I feel like it's like unsafe. <laughs> I, I feel too out of it when I land. I mean, oh, not yeah. that I've done anything remotely like that in a year, but back in the day, I remember deciding I was too old for red eyes. Well, uh, now with the pandemic and, and sheltering in space, you know, if I go to the market and mail a letter, I've done something today, you know? <laughs> know. Uh, it's so different, man. Yeah. How has your year been? Well, in all honesty, this is how I live anyway. I really <laughs> love being home. I love mm -hmm. cooking and reading and especially watching TV. Boy, do I love watching TV. So this is basically, you know, I, and I was very fortunate in that I worked all through the pandemic. Mm -hmm. My, you know, my work could be done remotely. Uh, Netflix sent me, this is Netflix's, uh, um, equipment. But Sounds then I good. had to learn it, Allison, <laughs> and that was tough, I'm telling you. Oh, my God. For which show? Or do you do a bunch of Netflix shows? I do. Um, yeah, I, I, and it's hard. I have to look at my IMDb. Some of them are from Nick, for Nickelodeon. Others are for Warner Brothers. But, um, yeah, two for Nickelodeon. The one that I'm doing now, uh, it's been announced. It's called Ridley Jones, and it's oh, for yeah. kids. And um, I don't know exactly when it's coming out, but we're recording our second season. Well, that 
is nice that you've been able to work this whole time and it hasn't affected yeah. you that much. Yeah. Yeah. I also am, I consider myself an introvert. I consider myself fairly, I have reclusive tendencies. Like I'm fine going a number of days without seeing people. My younger sister, we live together. And that's when I, when I was like, oh, that's what it's, it, it's so different. She's so different than I am in that she begins to f- just feel cooped up. If if it's been a few days of being by herself, and I'm like, no, I'm like just settling in a few days in. But this experience has made me realize the limits of that. Like, I want the option of staying in while things are going on outside. Yeah, but also you have um, the energy drain of small children. That's true. I, you know, I shouldn't have used the word drain. That's no, it pejorative, is. But it is a drain. Well, <laughs> uh, it is hard. We need our breaks. Yeah. Yeah. So you were on uh, Kids Say the Darndest Things, Art Linklater Show, when you were four, and you heard the laughter, and it felt amazing. And yes. then talk me through your how you got into performing after that. Um, well, I mean, there were when I walked to school, I would tell the neighborhood kids stories, stories that I made up, which were an amalgam of things I'd seen on TV. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I started gaining a following, which was really <laughs> exciting. Even big kids were in the group. And I was always afraid I'd be busted. You know, they'd recognize a plot from Caltiki or something and I'd be <laughs> finished. But... um you know, there were school performances. There were camp performances. We put on a, a, an original show in our neighborhood. Um, so, but I never thought I'm going to be an actress. Mm-hmm. I just thought this is the best fun ever. And the response that the audience gives me feels so good. Mm-hmm. Um, I did, however, when I was probably really small, the theater that's on, um, Santa Monica Boulevard in West Hollywood. It's a legit theater. I It's been there forever. And I saw some production of like Prince Charming or something like that. And I went backstage and I saw the actors with all their makeup on and the way it all smelled and looked. And I thought, I want to be part of this world. Mm-hmm. You know, what do you think? Of, what, what about it appealed to you? There was something magical about it. They seemed like unearthly creatures. Mm-hmm. And I always, you know, my fantasies as a little kid, I always wanted to have superpowers. Uh, you know, I dreamt that I could fly so often that I was convinced I could, which got my collarbone broken. Yes, that uh, <laughs> story. And that it was like many hours until your parents realized, right? Yeah, it was not reported by the babysitter. Yeah. But... um you know, it, it was, uh, I wanted power and I wanted to be super smart and super beautiful and all the men loved me. You know, I wanted Prince Valiant and Tom Hatton from the Popeye cartoon show. I, <laughs> I just, you know, I dug men so much. Uh, that's not change. But anyway, um, that it just, you know, I liked the idea of having some sort of asset, mm-hmm. you know, um, that I could exercise. The word that came to my mind when I was imagining these actors and their makeup and wanting to be part of that world, the word in my mind was invincible. Like there's something to me invincible about an actor performing in his or her, in their role. 
that like while that production is going on, that world is safe and invincible and magical. Yeah. Uh, What can I add to that? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, as a child, you can't really conceive of the otherness of being an actor. Mm -hmm. You only know what your response to it is, not what it would be like for the individual actor. Right. And then what did you find it to be like? Well, I I always said that, you know, fame means that you can always get change for a dollar. <laughs> I uh, This was before you could use your credit card for a parking meter. But it's it's it can be so schizophrenic because mm. you're either like uh, a cultural icon to someone or people don't recognize you at all. They recognize the famous friend that you're with, you know, and say, would you take a picture with us? It's like, sure. Mm-hmm. Oh, God, kill me. You know. Were you able to enjoy the height of your fame? Uh, that's a mixed, I, that would be a mixed answer. Sometimes it was great. And we'd find ourselves in situations you know, I think when there was an IOTSI strike, we shot one episode in Brooklyn, and the band was the musical guest. Mm-hmm. And so Gilda and I were up in the bleachers watching their sound check and just looking at each other like, God, we are so lucky. This is unbelievable. And the exposure to, you know, the bands and the hosts and the parties we got to go to, the ones we were invited to, um, you know, there are so many things that are fun and but also kind of infantilizing for actors where their path is smoothed out mm. for them, ahead mm-hmm. of them, so that they don't have to deal with stuff. First class, backstage pass, all this kind of stuff. And that's why I think a lot of people have a hard time when that goes away. Mm-hmm. I, having grown up in Los Angeles and seeing, you know, actors that had been well-known and been on shows and then not being on them anymore, I saw what that was like. You know, I knew that that was something that an actor could expect. Mm -hmm. That's so interesting to describe it as infantilizing. I hadn't thought of it that way. But yeah, I see it. But I mean, it is coddling in a way. Oh, yeah. At the same time, it sounds nice to only fly first class and to have everything (laughs) and to have huge hotel rooms. (laughs) And have people imbue you with all these qualities that you don't even have. Right. Wonderful qualities that you wish you had because there's a fantasy that, you know, I always, I don't know, some guy asked me, if you could have dinner with three people, who would it be? And I, I couldn't name anybody except like Barack Obama because it's these people are strangers whoever Mm -hmm. I might admire you know Skrillex somebody (laughs) I don't necessarily want to have dinner with these people because I don't know them and they Mm -hmm. don't know me Mm -hmm. and whatever expectation I might have of how happy they're gonna be to meet me and talk to me that's just not true Mm -hmm. you know yeah I mean I I do that is sort of the the dark side of all of this is that realization that someone who appreciates your work might feel really close to you and they feel as if they know you through the work. And then I go, but is that, but do they really, or is it a projection? I like to think at least in podcasting that they do. Yes, because you can be more uh, personal. You can be more exposed for better or worse. Um, 
it's coming off the top of your head. You're not saying anybody else's words but your own. Mm -hmm. So you get to be known to a certain extent because of this form. Right. But you're right. It is a projection with regard to people who are on camera. Mm -hmm. And I should just – let me just amend this thing about having dinner with famous people. It's not so much that I think they would be excited to meet me, but they would be as excited as I am to meet them. That's the thing. But, you know, it's never true, really. Sometimes it is. (laughs) I mean, sometimes people say that they're a fan of mine and I'm flabbergasted. It's so exciting to me. I think the first time I had that happen, there was a a cast party. Well, actually, it was at a party uh, and Woody Allen was there. Mm -hmm. And he came over to me and and said, you're the best thing on that show. Oh, wow. yeah, and I was thinking, gee, he he watches the show. I I'm amazed. But also there was a cast party for the first movie I did while I was on SNL, which was American Hot Wax. And Smokey Robinson came up to me and said, I really love your Lena Wartmuller. <laughs> it's amazing. That kind of stuff that's really wonderful. Yeah. And unexpected. Yeah. So you said that you knew college wasn't for you because you had Mm -hmm. disliked school and you um you wrote letters to a bunch of drama schools in london so i'm curious about that process but but why did you not like school well other than the subjects i was interested in um i had a lot of trouble um i think i probably had learning disabilities Mm -hmm. And because there was no name for that, I just felt this incredible confusion and anger and fear at the fact that everybody else seems to know what's going on and I don't, you know. And I didn't necessarily think I was stupid, so I I just felt kind of persecuted in a way Mm. that somehow they got, you know, they they were sent down from the Lord with an instruction book (laughs) that I never got. So... I just felt like, you know, it would have been more of that. And I really wanted to do, well, I mean, I wanted to do what I wanted to do. So (laughs) it was kind of that too. So you wrote to schools in London. Was this, that just strikes me as so, as uh, so enterprising for a high schooler to do that. Did you have an adult helping you? Yes, I had a therapist who, uh, Joshua Hoffs, who was Susanna Hoffs' dad. Oh, wow. I was such a Bengals fan. Yeah, and he gave me really practical advice. He said, what do you want to do? And I I said, I I don't know. I mean, I never really knew what the name was for what I did because I wrote a lot of my stuff, but I was also in high school productions. Mm -hmm. So I guess that means an actor. You know, so, and he said, well, do you know of any acting schools? And I said, I only know of the ones in England. So he said, write to the British consulate and get pamphlets for them. So that's what I did. It was because of him, really. So you were already in therapy as a teen. Oh, God, all through. Yeah, I was in therapy a lot. Mm -hmm. What, um, was it, did the school? Why does she lock her door? (laughs) Who had put you in therapy? My parents. Why? Yeah. I, I literally, because I, I locked my door. Oh, it and really they was also, of that. Yeah, and they knew I was doing drugs, too. Mm-hmm. 
And when did you start doing drugs? When I was 13. What was that like? Um, well, it was, um, you know those scenes in movies where rays of light filter through clouds onto the horizon? Yes. It felt like that. You know, all this, all these bad feelings that I had all the time were immediately washed away. I had, uh, okay, whoever, all the guys who are listening to this right now, you can turn it off. I'm going to talk about my period for a second, just a second. <laughs> it's okay. They're used to it. Uh, I talk about it all the time. All right. Well, I got monster cramps. They were awful. I mean, they were so bad that when I had my first daughter and I was dilated to five centimeters, mm -hmm. I didn't need any drugs because it was like, You're yeah, used to it. I remember this. <laughs> so, um, but I was prescribed something called Darvon. Mm -hmm. And someone said that if you take it apart, there is a little pink pill in the middle that is codeine and it'll make you high. Oh, wow. And and Allison, I was such a nerd and such a good girl and obedient and mm -hmm. every other aspect of my life, but I had no compunction about taking this thing. And it just, the feeling that I had was, it was just nirvana. Mm -hmm. You know, it was just, finally, there was something that took away that bad feeling that made me feel embraced. I mean, a lot of times they describe opiates as feeling warm from the inside. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Warm from the inside. Not hot, which is unpleasant, obviously, but warm. Right. And, uh, and protected, uh, and slightly removed mm -hmm. from the situation, which was a wonderful place for me to be. Yeah. So did you, um, were you abusing the codeine? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> and this was Beverly Hills High School. So, you know, Less Than Zero is a really true book. <laughs> and, you know, drugs were abundant. They were available. Um, but again, I wasn't doing serious drugs mm -hmm. at that time. You know, I moved on to marijuana and did that a lot and then tried psychedelics for a while. Um, but that was really the limit. You right. know, I didn't try cocaine until I had um, come back from studying in Europe, and my parents wanted me to have a skill to fall back on, so I went to Sawyer Business College, <laughs> and that's where I discovered coke. So, wow. be careful. <laughs> right. Be careful when you, you know, a to... trade school offers all <laughs> sorts of delights. <laughs> I want to tell you guys about something I love, and that is the purple mattress I'm holding up a little sample of what it's made out of. It's really cool. Uh, the purple is comfort reinvented. Only purple has the grid, which is a stretchy gel material that's amazingly supportive for your back and legs while cushioning your shoulders, neck, and hips. I don't know how it does it. It's just fantastic. And because of, ha of how it's designed, the grid doesn't trap air. Air is able to flow through it so you don't get hot all night. The grid bounces back as you move and shift, unlike memory foam, which remembers everything. And that's why memory foam has craters and divots. Look, I don't know about you, but I don't want my mattress remembering everything. I want my mattress to have selective memory, like me at this point. Right now, you can try your Purple Mattress risk-free with free shippings and returns. Financing is available too. Look, you guys, the world is becoming increasingly uncomfortable. You want your bed situation to be a haven. You want it to be the ultimate comfort. 
Purple really is comfort for an uncomfortable world. Right now, you'll get 10% off any order of $200 or more. Go to purple.com slash bestfriend10 and use promo code bestfriend10. That's purple.com slash bestfriend10, promo code bestfriend10 for 10% off any order of $200 or more. Purple.com slash bestfriend10, promo code bestfriend10. Terms apply. So you went to London for your like final round of auditions and mm-hmm. didn't get into any of the schools. And is this right? You talked to your mom and she had a, a recommendation for you. Yeah, she recommended that I go at least look at Marcel Marceau's school because I had already studied mime since the age of 16, mime and improv. So I went and uh, I really wanted him to say no because <laughs> I was scared. I didn't want to, like, have to move somewhere where mm-hmm. I didn't really speak the language, right. although I caught on pretty pretty quickly. Um, but it was a great experience. I was there for a year. I mean, that just seems like a – so you were, what, 18, 19? Yes, 18. To all of a sudden go off to Paris to study mime with Marcel Marceau – Mm-hmm. I feel like yeah. kids these days don't do – kids of any in any day don't do that kind of thing, but especially now they don't. I mean, that just seems so – it's so worldly. It's so fancy and worldly. Well, I mean, we were a middle-class family, but I had enough money to live cheaply, mm-hmm. you know, and I had a roommate and our – our, our apartment was literally a concierge's converted office. <laughs> it was really small. Mm-hmm. And uh, it had, you know, right next to the kitchen was the shower, which also contained the toilet because there's this thing they call the Turkish torture, which is literally a place for your feet and a hole so oh, that I've you have to squat, you yeah. know. Um, and that was right next to the kitchen. Yay. Appetizing. Yay. Yay. <laughs> So did that for a year. And were you thinking that you would, like, what were you thinking you would do after that? Well, see, I've been realizing that I've had to say this in a lot of the interviews I'm doing. I'm not a big picture kind of person. <laughs> I just always followed my interests. I followed the things that I was really, really fascinated by. And that always led to the next thing and the next thing mm-hmm. and the next thing. And it's really I think why I seem to have the luck and the serendipity to be at meaningful moments mm-hmm. in pop culture, whether it be, you know, living in Los Angeles and the British invasion and and the accessibility. I mean, I saw the Beatles twice and, you know, there were clubs where you could see everybody, right. you know, and... uh and then when the comedy store opened, which was really the first of its kind, it was the first club that had exclusively stand-up. Mm-hmm. No music, nothing, just stand-up. So I, I witnessed that. I witnessed this whole kind of growth and burst of of comedy, saw all the stuff that was going on in town. And then we, at the same time, were starting the Groundlings. Is that where you were doing – had to do trust falls? Was that yes. the Groundlings? Yes. Can we talk we only for had moment? to do it once. <laughs> Let's Just talk once. for a moment about trust falls because I also detest trust falls. I don't feel – I don't – I'm not sure that it really built – I'm not sure it does what it's supposed to do. But do you know, does that still happen nowadays or was that a specific moment in time? I couldn't speak to that. I have no idea. But I can bet you that they don't do it in the Groundlings now. <laughs> 
Right. They don't have a wall to fall off of. You know, we had a, this was the Cellar Theater on Vermont before we moved to the Oxford and then moved to Melrose. So I know a little bit about how you got into SNL. Um, Lauren had hired you to be in a Lily Tomlin special, right? Yes. And then, but what, and then how did that translate into being, you know, in the first iteration of well, SNL. he was hired to do to create a show for um, Carson reruns. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think on Saturdays, um, and they just let him do whatever he wanted. And so he went looking for performers, and he came back to the Groundlings. And he actually offered it to several other people in the company, but they turned it down because oh, really? they thought, yeah, they for various reasons, yeah, they turned it down, but. I was game. Again, it was like I was just following the things that were exciting and interesting to me. And I don't mean that to sound cavalier. No, it doesn't. I I was very excited about it. I don't think that sounds cavalier. And I think that that is now advice given to people who are trying to figure out what to do. Like, well, what excites you? Follow your passion. You you did this way back before everyone else discovered it. Well, now also it really pays to be, and I think most kids are very entrepreneurial. Mm-hmm. You know, both my kids do stand-up, and they create their own shows where they book the talent mm-hmm. and find the venue. You know, I mean, 25 and 22, these kids are doing this. Right. They have right. all these tools like YouTube and, and the iPhone to make you know, their own content. It's just, they've really got the power. They've got the power. <laughs> so how how is that having children who are doing comedy? And uh, do you weigh in? Do you hold back? Only if they ask me. You know, um, they have the aptitude for it. They're mm-hmm. both really talented, more talented than I ever was, and which is a joy for me. And they both have incredible minds, very unique minds and approaches. And I think part of it was because when I drove them to grammar school, we're talking like kindergarten, first grade, mm-hmm. all the through, uh, I was playing Patton Oswald and Maria Bamford and the mm-hmm. Sklar brothers for them. And I encouraged them to read as much as they could and see if this is what they wanted to do. I encouraged them to see everything they could possibly see so that they would not do that, Mm. that they would do something entirely different. And they sure as hell did. That's great. Very proud of them. How do they live? Do they still live here? Uh, The younger one lives here. The older one lives in Brooklyn. Have you been able to see the older one during this year? Yeah. Oh, not during the pandemic. No, but FaceTime. That's it. (laughs) You've been able to quote unquote see. Yeah. And Spike is my older child's name and they're non-binary. So I refer to them as them. Mm -hmm. And they've started their own business. So even though they're on an HBO show, when they're not filming, they're a dog walker. They have their own business. They're doing really well. They don't need anything from me. Neither of them do. <clears throat> but I did talk to Al Franken the other day, and he was telling me what his kids were doing. And it was just so much like public service. And I was thinking, I'm a failure. <laughs> God, I hadn't even 
of all the things that I want my children to be, I hadn't even thought of like, and I've got to instill public service works as a thing. Yeah, well, that was the, it becomes a requirement in high school. Mm-hmm. You have to have it on your college application. And I, you know, with Spike, I knew that she loved Patton Oswalt. So I was just kind of sniffing around, finding out stuff I, I, I could about him. And I saw that he got involved in something called 826LA, oh, yeah. which was a literacy advocacy program in Venice. And it was not on the list of so-called, you know, public service stuff for her high school, for their high school. But um, I, it was able to be put on there. And they worked there. They tutored there for a year. And it was really great on their application. I bet. So I wanted to ask a couple questions about specifically those five seasons on SNL. Well, actually, mm-hmm. let's go to the end first. Because you and I were talking about how I'd had Bobby Moynihan on last week. Yeah. Um, and he chose to leave after nine seasons. I'm always curious about that decision to leave. What made you decide to leave? Well, our contract was for five years. Okay. And it had been five years and, and Lorne was leaving. Mm-hmm. And oh, nobody right. wanted to nobody wanted to do it without him. You know, the network approached each of us individually asking if we wanted to stay. Mm-hmm. And I know that I didn't. I really wanted to go home. Yeah. How was the schedule just as grueling back then as I always hear about? Just the staying up Nothing. all night. Nothing has changed. It's so interesting to me. I hear, you know, past and current cast members talk about the schedule. I remember hearing, years ago, hearing Andy Samberg describe Mm -hmm. the schedule, and I'm thinking, man, it's exactly the same. (laughs) And then uh, Fred Armisen and Cecily Strong, same thing. They both said, this is what happens, and I'm like, man, it's just how it was. Mm Mm-hmm. That must have been hard, except you had that twenty young 20-something energy. Yeah, and also we were being allowed to do stuff that made us laugh, and that's a really wonderful gift. And it also feels very special mm-hmm. that we're getting that freedom, and look at, they're, they're putting us on television doing it. Yeah. It was a great feeling. <clears throat> Did you invent our idea of Valley Girl? Oh, my God, you're putting me in a position of <laughs> humble bragging. And, you know, it's like that's a claim to fame. But, yeah, I guess I did the first one, yes. Because mm-hmm. you did that. You're, and I, you're welcome. <laughs> thank you. Thank Kill you. Kill me. You did that in your audition, right? Because that's on YouTube. Your SN, it's like an SNL screen test, and it's yeah, Sherry. That's, yeah. yeah, it's the monologue from the Groundlings that was eventually used in the Godfather group therapy sketch on mm-hmm. SNL. But that was, uh, a, uh, you know, a piece that I did in the Groundlings. Right. And you talked a little bit in the book about the difference between the Valley Girl, as it was understood then, that you did, versus the one, like the the thing they're doing in the Californians. The Californians, yeah. It's a but, different thing entirely. And I remember noticing the sort of how that was morphing. Can you explain that a little bit? Like, what is the difference? Oh, my God. I, I Let me think about that. Well, first of all, I was listening to NPR one day, and they were talking about dialects in the Mm -hmm. country and the fact that, you know, like the Boston pronunciation of ka and things like that are an affectation. Mm. It was not a corruption of an existing 
accent from point of origin for immigrants. But in the case of the Valley dialect, they were talking about how it's kind of now become all over the country that mm-hmm. people are talking like that. And it's just kind of a, a, a slackness of the jaw, people not crossing their T's verbally. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's almost like a corruption of regional accents. I mean, people who are from really regional places still have wonderful fascinating accents. But overall, in urban areas, people have gotten really so much to sound that way to some degree. I mean, you know, the interrogative lilt at the end of sentences like, I thought I'd do this. Mm -hmm. And then he said this, you know, uh, that I think is definitely, you know, (laughs) the infection that started with the Valley Speak. Right. I think I noticed the first time I was like, wait, this used to be different. Um, the, is it called mall girls or the, like Chris Farley, David Spade was Adam Sandler when they're in a mall and they're like, eh, my God. Oh, well, which is, that I was, mean, is different than, than how you did it. Yeah. I broke down the dialect in the book. Um, there are a lot of things that make up that Valley accent. You know, we have the Spanish influence because it's a Spanish land grant state mm-hmm. and uh people coming and it was mexico people coming from the dust bowl uh but i noticed that there was like a glottal l to begin with so words like really would become really <laughs> and probably would be probably mm-hmm. you know and the ing endings would be in mm-hmm. like i'm going and i'm starting instead of starting right and of course contractions were fun uh, wouldn't was want and couldn't was <clears throat> cunt. <laughs> and you mentioned when you <laughs> were on the California, you came on to the Californians as, is it Kristen Wiggs' mom? Yes. And you were going to say cunt, but then you chickened out. How come? I just thought it would have been really selfish. And I didn't know what it would have done you know, to the show, because it, that's certainly a word that is not used. I mean, God knows they 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 bleep out a lot of stuff, and we know perfectly well what word they're saying, but mm-hmm. I've never heard them bleep that out. Right. You know, so I just, I was ambivalent because, yeah, I wanted to do it for the fun of it, but I really thought that it might have been damaging to the mm-hmm. show, and I didn't want to do that. Yeah. The uh, Exorcist Two sketch mm-hmm. with Richard yes. Pryor that I was just like crying laughing at. Uh, um, but but why? So I know that. So you play uh, the girl who's possessed. Yeah. Reagan. I yeah. can't remember if it was Reagan or Regan. Uh, that I and by the way, I've never even with my eyes seen The Exorcist. Uh, it was played at a slumber party I went to and I hid under a blanket the entire time and it still scared the crap out of me. Yeah, it's a good one. Yeah. I don't know if I could handle it now. I don't think I could. But anyway, you play the main character. Um, and Chevy Chase did the voice when she's possessed, though. But why? Because I had to be body mic'd. And there's a part where Richard Pryor has to throttle me. Mm-hmm. And it would have, his hands would have banged against the mic. Got it. And made a bad sound. And boy, did I want to do that voice. Yeah, I bet. You know. Your mother sews cocks in hell. <laughs> Wait a minute. Socks. It's socks. Okay. <laughs> really wanted to do it, but we couldn't. Yeah. 
Oh, that's disappointing. But he got a line wrong. Is that right? Yeah. And of course, it made it look like it was my mistake that I was mouthing the wrong thing. But I think he was just messing with me. <laughs> um, I looked at your website and I saw that you're a big Coachella fan. Very, very big fan. Yes, I love Coachella. I mean, I've been going since 2010 when it was only one weekend and it was two days and you could buy a ticket for a single day if you wanted to. And it was a really well-kept secret. And uh, I had a friend, an ex-boyfriend whose daughter was in a band that was playing there. So he was dialed. Mm -hmm. He told me where to stay and do the shuttle and the whole thing. Although the first year I wasn't hip to that. And boy, was that a misery. (laughs) (laughs) Because it is literally a mile to the entrance of uh, Coachella. Have you been there? I went... um, Not to sound extremely cool or anything, but I did go the very, very first year, but just for one day or one night. Um, Who was playing? It was Rage Against the Machine, and I can't remember anyone else. That's all I remember. No. Rage Against... Who else I I know they played when I was there, so maybe they played twice. But the first one, I think, was in 1999. Mm -hmm. That's the year that I went. When you were two. Yes. (laughs) That's right. I was too. Mm-hmm. I'm very, very, I'm very young. So I, <laughs> yes, some of my references seem older than I could possibly be given how young I look. But still, mm-hmm. speaking of looking young, I have to ask, this is just now a selfish question, but I'm just always curious about it. You mentioned that you did, you you resisted getting a nose job, even though a lot of your peers were doing that. But then ultimately you did. Yeah. And I, and I've shared this on the show, but I've not had, I've had no work, but I have been like fantasizing about nose jobs and curious about them and looking at pictures since I was 15. I feel like if I was going to do it, I, I would have done it before, but I still think I find myself thinking about it like all the time. What was your experience with it? And why did you finally do it? Well, um, <clears throat> as you age, the cartilage in the tip of your nose breaks down. And that's why, you know, Crohn's and older people are depicted as having Mm, hooked noses. And I knew that was in my future. And I'd always hated it. And, you know, it was like, "Ah, let's put on a new hat, you know. (laughs) Uh, But what I've learned about any kind of work is that you you lose one problem, but you gain another. Mm. It's like now that now my nose is wider than it was. Mm -hmm. And so it's always a I think that right now I probably would have had it done a little better. Right. Did you experience happiness uh, somewhere on the spectrum of happy to elation over how your nose looked? Um, yeah, I was happy with it. I was very happy with it. Um, there are times when it looks really like a nose job, but there are other times when it doesn't. Mm-hmm. And I'm really grateful for that. And also I've aged into it, so it looks more natural. And the pain? No, it's no pain. No pain. <laughs> no. no, and who's afraid of pain? You know, me sometimes, but maybe Well, I if should. you watch RuPaul's Drag Race, you know that to be beautiful, you have to suffer. <laughs> yeah, there's this account that I, this is how much I'm like still, uh, I'm like, an, I'm like an, somewhere between an enthusiast and aficionado of other people's nose jobs. There's an account that I follow. And it's this woman sort of charting her rhinoplasty journey. And right now, 
she it's still swollen. She's a handful of weeks out and it's really swollen. And she's w- really worried about something called polybeak, which I had not even heard of. I don't know. What it's that like is. she's in England. So maybe the, it's a it's when it heals. But you have sort of a roundness like, like a kind of like, Yeah. So she's really worried about that. And she's it seems like she's regretting it a little bit. Has she had more than one? No, this is her first oh. one. Well, I, you know, I now I got to look it up. You got to tell me what that is so <laughs> I, I can take a look at it because I'm send curious. It, I'll send it to you after. I'll, I'll send it to you on Instagram. Um, okay, so you leave SNL after five years, and then what did you do? Um, fuck all. Uh, really, I I didn't know what to do. Uh, but things kind of fell in my lap and I had a really good agent. So I never really, the only years up until now since SNL that I didn't work were the years I had my children. Mm-hmm. So very good packaging at ICM, a wonderful agent, uh, Michael Black and, and Iris Grossman. They kept me working, but I was also doing, you know, uh, live shows that were really fun, but didn't make any money. Mm-hmm. But they were great experience. I mean, I did things that I really benefited from, but they were kind of, um, I guess what you would call alternative, like a show that we did at the, in the Blossom Room at the Hollywood Roosevelt Hotel called The Hollywood Primary. And it was a political comedy review mm-hmm. with sketches and, you know, Chevy was in it and Chris Guest and it was all these wonderful people. And then I went back to the Groundlings and took classes there for a while and came up with some new characters. And there was a performance for that, which scared the shit out of me. Why? Um, well, because I felt like there would be an expectation that I would be something spectacular, mm-hmm. which I didn't feel I was. And especially seeing the new talent that was coming up, they were just so dazzling. Mm. So I felt I had a lot to prove. See, I was, I'm wondering if you think they were intimidated by you. Given that this is Lorraine Newman from SNL and founding member of the Groundlings. Well, I only know what I thought. And what I thought had to have been what they thought. I can relate. You know what I mean? Yes. (laughs) Being ironic there. (laughs) Because everybody feels the same way I do about everything. I mean, maybe they do. (laughs) Oh, no. No, I don't think so. Um, when did you get sober? 1987. Uh, didn't know I was going to get AA, but it it was the only thing because I had tried to stop using before that, and it's the only thing that really worked. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's a great community. It's a great way of living. It's basically, you know, tell the truth. when you When you fuck up, own up to it. Be kind. Be of service. You know, it's a great way to live. And um, I knew I was finished. I was never one of those people that thought, I could quit any time I want. You know, I knew that I was an addict from the very first. Mm -hmm. You know, I just didn't want to stop. And then when I wanted to, it was really hard because it's an obsession, you know. What, What was the substance you were using at that point? Cocaine. I was a specialist. (laughs) <laughs> I, some people call themselves a garbage can because they'll take anything, but mm. I really, I never drank alcohol. I, I never liked the taste and I didn't like what it did. You know, it just affected my body, but never mm. my mind. And that right. was the, the goal. So, 
you know, I just did coke. And to, in order to come down, if I couldn't get like quaaludes, remember quaaludes, <laughs> or things like that, I would just read and eat. Mm. That's how I would come down. Um, but yeah, it was just cocaine. Mm. And I had someone in the neighborhood who delivered and took checks. Oh, nice. Yeah. Checks. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You said that when you were done, you were done. You wanted to be done. What made you want to be done? I had an audition, which is always a trauma. And <clears throat> it was one more abysmal, humiliating thing. And my agent, Michael Black, called me afterwards and said, how did it go? And I said, I was terrible. He said, good. I just wanted to make sure that you were aware of that because I got to tell you, honey, Ugh. they called me and asked me what was wrong with you. And I realized that this last thing that took me out into the world, which was my work, mm -hmm. that door was going to close to me if mm -hmm. I didn't do something and I would be totally shut out of the world. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I did what was suggested, you know, and put one foot in front of the other and it really worked. What had happened at that audition that made them call him? Sorry to well, make you relive this. Oh, God damn it. <laughs> I mean, first of all, I, I knew the director. So my way of ingratiating myself with him was to kind of bond with our mutual dislike of someone. Mm. Now, this is bad-mouthing someone in front of the casting director. Yeah. It was just obnoxious. And then my reading just was terrible because I'm not good at auditions. So it was a wonderful combo <laughs> of, of me being an obnoxious asshole and a lousy performer. <laughs> um. I keep reading reviews of various SNL oral history books, and they talk about how every it seems that everyone, or maybe it's just two different books, but I read a few reviews of these two different books. And in the early days, uh, to hear people tell it, Chevy Chase was just a just very hard to work with. Was that your experience of him? No. But I, I can't say how it was for the guys. It might have been a different thing entirely. But Chevy was always lovely to the girls. He was always nice. He wasn't uh, abusive in any way. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was a really, the cast was wonderful. I, I, I realized this in, in doing press for this book is uh, nobody ganged up on anybody. And there were never clicks which is remarkable when you think about it because it's it's just like a group of people but yeah. it's like a lifeboat that you're all you know contributing to this effort to survive you know mm -hmm. and also coming from an improv background it's all about supporting the other actor right so that we're really fortunate that way that we all were at least polite to one another that is wonderful what was your relationship with Gilda like? I know that you have said that you were never as close with her after as you were during your time at SNL. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> Gilda was wonderful. She's a wonderful person and so loving to me and so supportive and uh, affectionate, you know, um, except when she had a boyfriend and then nobody saw her, mm -hmm. you know. Um, but as hard as she worked, you know, she was very kind to me and, and everybody. 
Uh, and we had situations during the show, which is in the book, where she and I were caught in some pickles. I'll tell you, Allison, <laughs> we were in a couple of pickles together. And she always made them great. Uh, and she always made me feel special and loved. She would make a big deal about people that she cared about. She would give parties for people and birthday parties and things like that. And even after the show ended, I would find a present on my doorstep on my birthday, even though I haven't talked to her in maybe, you know, a year. Mm -hmm. And that's a lovely thing to do. Yeah. Are you like that? I can be, yeah. Yeah, when I remember. But yeah, I do give a lot more presents now than I used to. Mm -hmm. And people are always amazed by that. And I write thank you notes, which people are also amazed by. I've tried to get my kids to write thank you notes. It's so important to me. Yes, I can remember my mom really crawling up my butt about thank you notes. But you're right. And I feel like now it's really, you really don't see them that much. No. And people can email or text them, which is at least something. Something. But I still have to, well, not anymore, but I did have to ride them a lot to get them to do it. They're they're very much more mature now and do it on their own. <laughs> All right. Let's do Just Me or Everyone. Sometimes I ponder on something I have thought or done. Is it just me? Or everyone. Okay, so that Lorraine, you have one or a million, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, the one I, I think I'll talk about, and if I think of the other ones, that'll be good if I okay. remember them. But, um, and especially because of the pandemic, I'm watching more TV than ever. And I start acting the roles as I'm watching them. <laughs> or if there's something going on in a plot, you know, I'll talk to the TV. Mm. Like, you know, this always drove me crazy in Walking Dead when the horde of zombies is right on their necks, but somehow someone has to make a speech. <laughs> that kind of I shit know. drives me crazy. And yes. it's that way for everything. You know, the the uh, the radioactive ray is going to hit the surface of the moon and we got to go, but someone's taking a long, smoldering, lingering look. <laughs> Why? You know? <laughs> I know. But what what else have you yeah. been watching? I, I have to okay. I don't think I begin to act things out. I think I do a little bit talk back to the screen. So I think that's yes. probably everyone. Yeah. Yeah. I what think everybody you, talks back to the screen. What else have you been watching? Um, oh my God. Well, I love horror, so I've been watching Eli Roth's History of Horror, which was great. Oh my god, I watch so many things. I watch a lot of uh, Nordic you know, Swedish crime dramas. Oh. Um, a lot of foreign stuff, mm -hmm. which is really Call My Agent from France is such I a heard great that show. Oh. But I've been watching For All Mankind and um oh my gosh, uh Ricky Gervais's show Afterlife. Um Oh, I just could go on and on, my These dear. These are all the respectable list. choices. I've just been sucked into the world of Bravo's below deck. Do you watch any reality? I watch some reality, um, but it's it really, what is Below Deck? What is that about? Oh, it's about the ups and downs of a ragtag group of people who work on a chartered yacht. So, <laughs> oh, man, so relatable. Yeah, 
Really, the whole thing is so relatable. So they work on the chartered yacht, though. But then it also focuses on the guests that come on the chartered yacht. But it's really about the it's like the deck crew and then the interior crew and the chef and the captain and how they the hierarchies. Yeah. Upstairs, downstairs. Exactly. Um, Got it. It's really good. I I haven't been into I was into Vanderpump Rules and then I hadn't been into reality in a long time. And then I got sucked into this. And it's. It's what I watch every night. I stay up I too gotta late say, watching it. I got to say, I have heard people talking about that show. It's pretty good. But I like shows that involve skill like Project Runway and um, Great British Baking Show. Mm-hmm. And all the people on that are so nice. I have a problem with the sob stories. Yes. You know, I mean, I like the voice, but, you know, I'm doing this for my grandmother who died three years ago. Yes. And know? they have to start that. Everything starts with that speech. Yeah, and I record it, and then I just scan it. <laughs> right. It's like, just let me hear you sing. I just want to hear you yeah. sing. Yeah, we get it. We get it. Your character has a point of view. You have an arc. Um, yeah. Okay, so uh, let's see. Shayle says, I get irrationally annoyed when I go to someone's profile to find a specific tweet or post only to realize that they're way too active on social media and it would take 20 minutes of scrolling to find what I'm looking for. Just me or everyone. I so go ahead. She's saying that there was something she saw posted and then didn't respond immediately or had there were so many responses that she had to scroll. I think she's saying she remembers a tweet or post and she wants to go find it. And then she oh, goes yeah. to go find it. And it's like, there's no way they're going to she's going to find it because this person has eight million tweets. Oh, that is so annoying. <laughs> it's terrible. I have this with myself. If I want to find something I tweeted and then I'm like, my God, how many tweets? Yeah. Where is it? <clears throat> um, okay. Lisa Lowry says, sort of an embarrassing JMOA, just be everyone. I check my visual weight loss status on my ring cameras as I come and go. Get a better perspective of me in my natural habitat. I have done this. I have been like, oh my God, that's a t- that's what I, that's what that angle of me looks like. Well, this is a rude awakening. So I've, I've done that before. I've surrendered all vanity, Allison. Of course I'm you have. Going to be 69. And I'm tired. <laughs> I I just, uh, I love food. I'm very overweight. You don't look overweight healthy. at all. Guys, I have a small head. <laughs> I have a small face. But yeah, uh, it's a behemoth behem- <laughs> from the neck down. I don't see any, um, I don't see any weight here. Trust me. Okay. I mean, maybe it's a, maybe it's a, um, a, a it's an angle situation, but. It's totally an angle. I know okay. what I'm doing. Whoops. <laughs> I couldn't, as everything falls apart. <laughs> um, have you really surrendered all vanity? Because I have to tell you, and again, I'm very, very young, but each birthday, I'm like, I am too old to care this much what other people think. And I mean, it's been like 10 years of ha- saying that to myself, but still, but, I mean, incrementally, I'm getting closer and closer to like, I don't know, a better place, but it's hard. Well, of course, I was kidding when I said I've surrendered all vanity. Yes. Uh, I'm terribly vain. I still am. I wish I wasn't. But, um, you know, I get tired. So it, it really takes a lot for me to put on makeup, mm. God forbid, a bra. There's no God. way I'm wearing high heels for the rest of my life. <laughs> you know, um, and God damn it, I just love eating. So, you know, 
um, I ha- you have to be willing, and I'm not going to chronicle my weight. I'm just not going to do it unless I'm actually trying to lose weight, but I'm yeah. just not doing that right now. Yeah, the bra thing, and I am wearing one now. It's just a little thing I do when I do the show most of the time. However, I'm so flattered. <laughs> yeah, please, please be feel supported by my support. Um, but I was thinking of taking my son on a walk today, and then I thought, oh, but then I had to put on a bra, and then I thought, nah. Well, see, I'm not wearing one, and I have a black shirt on. So I can't, can't even tell. tell. Right, that's the idea. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Um, okay. Shannon Hurley says, even though I shave my legs regularly, I change my razor about once a year. Just mirror everyone. No, I change it more often than once a year. Well, I found these eyebrow razors and I am very hairless. I mean, I would only need to pluck my legs and underarms, but I use this little eyebrow razor and just do my underarms and my lower legs, which is the only place that has hair. And you've so always been hairless relate. like this? Pretty how, hairless, yeah. How lucky you are. I, I, And I also have beautiful feet, Elson. Wow. Very beautiful feet. What size are, I don't want to, I don't want to like get into wiki feet territory, but what <sighs> size are your beautiful feet? They're sevens, but they're, the toes are, are equal. There's no deforming of the toes. I, I have gorgeous feet. And that is it. <laughs> That's, That's wonderful. Wrote. How it's wonderful for you. Because <clears throat> I remember a friend of mine years ago <clears throat> being like, I have really cute feet. Do you want to see? And I'm like, sure. And she did. She had very cute feet. So Yeah. You I never think, think about that. It's great that you can see how cute your feet are. Um, Wessum says, getting into bed makes me legitimately happy. Yes. Same. God, yes. It's my yes. favorite part of the day. I appreciate it so much, and I've gotten my bed to the point where, I don't know if you've watched those old-time black and white movies where people have quilts that are all satin. Oh, I don't think I have. They're very hard to find, and I finally found it. So I've got sheets that are really soft, pillowcases that are really soft, and now I have my satin blanket, and it's just heaven. Where did Every you f- time. I, I found it at Bloomingdale's. There you go. But I just... uh Every single night I get into bed and I'm just like, ah, I've earned this. <laughs> That's how I feel when I get into bed. I also do a, like sometimes even an audible like, ah. Um, <laughs> and then I think, why did I wait so long to get in? Like, because I have a going to bed too late problem recently. Mm-hmm. And I think, why? I could have just done this a few hours earlier. I was tired. What was I, what, what was worth staying up for? But what was worth it was below deck. But I mean, not really worth it when I consider how great it feels <laughs> to get into bed. And also a lot of mornings, this is a just mirror, everyone. Back when I w- had more, a more normal schedule, I would be in the shower and I would think just X many hours and I can get back into bed. And that was very, de- the thought itself was sort of depressing to me. Like, shouldn't I relish my, my day on earth a little more? Um, Yes, Allison, and I think you should judge yourself that you're <laughs> not doing that. Um, Thank you. I, I, I've noticed since the pandemic I'm staying up later than I ever have. Mm-hmm. It gets like I'm, it's the next thing I know, it's two in the morning. And uh, like, but I, if I go to bed too early, I'll wake up during the night and not be able to go back to sleep. Isn't that an interesting story? It's quite a conundrum. What? It is. Yeah. Lorraine Newman, it was so delightful 
having you on the show. Thank, thank you, you so much, this everyone. This so fun, Allison. Thank you. On March 11th, everyone, or actually it's available for pre-order. So right now, everyone should go get May You Live in Interesting Times, your Audible original audiobook. I will put a link to it in the episode notes of this show. And then also, your publicist wanted me to mention something. Mm-hmm. You wanted me to mention that in addition to that, you can also watch you in conversation with, is it Alan Zweibel or Zweibel? Zweibel. Zweibel. I should have stuck with my for my, my first instinct. Just want to make yeah. clear, I know who he is. I just was doubting the pronunciation. You'll okay. be in conversation with Alan Zweibel at the 92nd Street Y, and that is available to people anywhere. Anywhere. Yes, can go see I can't that. wait for that. That's going to be great. Yeah, that sounds great. Um, tell everyone what else they should should look for you in, or plug anything else you'd like to plug. Well, they'll hear my voice in, um, gosh, you know, American Dead, SpongeBob, uh, Ridley Jones, uh, Talking Tom, <laughs> and I. I don't know if they'll recognize it. I've had friends that say that their kids from another room recognize my voice. So that means I'm not doing my job. But uh, yeah, <laughs> you'll hear me. I'm not I'm not in anything on camera right now. I, I did an episode of Los Spookies, but that was last oh. year. Oh, cool. I like that yeah. show. Um, nice. And you're on social media as at Lorraine, Lorraine Newman, Newman, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Great. Twitter. And I uh, am on Twitter and Instagram at Allison Rosen. If you like what you're hearing, please make sure you're subscribed. Tell a friend. Leave a... I, I'm begging you. This is me on my hands and knees begging you. Please leave uh, a review because that helps people find the show. Five stars, please. If you, that's how you feel, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to force your hand or anything, but I'm just saying this feels like a five-star situation right now. <laughs> also, Come I'm on... on- yeah, I'm on Patreon, patreon.com slash Allison Rosen. Uh, bonus episodes every week, Zoom parties, all sorts of fun stuff. Patreon.com slash Allison Rosen. I'm also on Cameo. And I have an Amazon store, which I've spent way too much time curating. So wow. I have, you can go there and you can shop my podcasting equipment. You can, I have all the makeup that I use, all the beauty stuff, stuff for kids, stuff for the home. And that is amazon.com slash shop slash Allison Rosen. Amazon.com slash shop slash Allison Rosen. And also, I, as I should have said at the very beginning of this show, if you're listening to it, you can actually see the whole thing. You can go see this. YouTube.com slash Allison Rosen. YouTube.com slash Allison Rosen. Um, again, Lorraine, thank you so much. This was so fun. This was so fun. Thanks really, a million. I really enjoyed talking to you. Listeners, thank you for listening. You matter. I love you. Goodbye. Hey, do you know about the Allison Rosen show? Rosie is your new best friend. 